0: Welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John.
1: And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number seven on their list.
0: Which means that in this episode, we'll be talking about David Raxon's score for the 1944 film noir mystery, Laura.
1: Laura was written for the screen by Jay Dratler, Samuel Hoffenstein, and Betty Reinhardt, based on the 1943 novel of the same name by Vera Kaspari. And it was produced and directed for 20th Century Fox by Otto Preminger. John, give us the rundown on Laura.
0: Laura is a detective story about solving the murder of a young woman. There's a detective, there are suspects, there's maybe a romance...
1: The detective, Mark McPherson, is played by Dana Andrews, and the suspects are principally the powerful gossip columnist Waldo Lidecker, played by Clifton Webb, a young society cad played by a very young Vincent Price, before he found out what you were supposed to do when you were Vincent Price, (laughs) and some kind of socialite lady played by Judith Anderson, and as Laura, Jean Tierney.
0: So Dana Andrews, Detective McPherson, is called upon to investigate the murder of Laura Hunt. In so doing, he meets various figures from her life, discovers the intertangle of relationships among them, and comes to develop his own feelings for her. And then some other stuff happens.
1: Good enough. Does he find out who did it? I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good enough. Good enough. So in the little intro episode zero thing that we put out before the first episode, we explained that this is going to be a spoilery show. Everything's going to get spoiled. We're going to say everything that happens in the movie without holding back. We don't say that on every episode, but I think it bears saying for this one.
0: I remember we made a similar extra warning when we talked about another movie about a mysterious woman that people become obsessed with and maybe she dies and maybe she doesn't. We said, well, you're going to have to know what happens in Vertigo, and we're going to say what happens in Vertigo for that episode.
1: Right. So we're going to say what happens in Vertigo, and we're going to say what happens in Laura. (laughs) And when you find out what happened, we're also going to say who did the thing that happens.
0: Yeah, I think we have to say what the secret twist of Laura is. So if you don't want to know that, well, listen, watch the movie and come back, because...
1: Yeah, pause. You've listened to the entire part of the show that you can listen to before you've seen the movie. Now pause. It wasn't her, it was another woman. Oh, we're saying it right now? And uh, Clifton Webb did it. It's happening right now? (laughs) You should have warned
0: me that you were going to say it right now. Sorry, John. You watched the movie, right? I have watched the movie. If our listeners haven't watched the movie, I hope they made their peace with that. (laughs) Yeah. She's not dead. That's right. She starts out the movie dead, and then uh, the whole first half of the movie, she's dead. Somebody killed her. Uh Uh-oh, but then not her.
1: She is alive. Yes. Laura is. That's right. John, I, I find this movie pretty weird. Does it work for you? Does it land?
0: Yeah, I think overall it lands, but I'm sympathetic to hearing why you think it's weird.
1: Um, attentive listeners to this show will know I like mysteries, I like... Uh, noir. Mm -hmm. I like mysteries that turn out to be about other things or, you know, have Mm -hmm. underlayers, psychological, whatever. I love that stuff.
0: Sounds like this movie.
1: It sounds like this movie. And I have always thought, well, this movie should be one of my favorites based on what it's like and what it's about. But it just feels unbalanced or I I don't know what to latch on to. I don't know what I'm caring about. Hmm. I don't know. It's completely personal, subjective response. And I'm curious to compare to yours, which I guess you do know what it's about. (laughs) Tell me some things you like about about this movie,
0: well, I like the mystery of it. I like the idea anyway of there being a mystery story in which the same character gets to be both the victim and a suspect in the same mystery, essentially. <laughs> you know that's kind of a cool thing to try to pull off if you're gonna set out to write a mystery and uh another thing I like about this movie, not to jump ahead too much is its score. What do you think about the score? uh ooh, ooh ooh what. Ooh, you're hesitating. I'm, I'm a little surprised at how much hesitation, but what? what's going to be the answer?
1: Well, I guess my big picture for this episode is I think that this not great movie gets a huge assist from a really smart, sophisticated, well-crafted bunch of scoring. huh. And I'm not sure it goes all the way to a place where I can really sink my teeth into it. So I sort of appreciate what's there a little bit in the abstract.
0: Huh. Where does it not get to for you?
1: I guess, I mean, the comparison in this series, certainly, and you've already mentioned it, is to Vertigo with Vertigo, you know, we had that quote from Hitchcock saying that this was to be a strange mood love story. And the strange mood was the mission statement as the artistic goal. And here, I feel like the screenwriter didn't have that in mind. And the director didn't even uh-huh. seem to have that in mind. And Raxon sort of perceived that he could go in that direction. And he, I think, very wisely pushes it as far as a young guy getting his first job is bold enough to push it. And to me, that's like, I don't know, a third of the way to the movie actually being about that. Hmm. I wish there was so much more music is really my uh, take on this score.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: I take it that you are pretty solidly enthusiastic about this. Uh,
0: No, you know, when you were describing your hesitation, I couldn't disagree with anything that you said. I really have a lot of admiration for this music and for a lot of the specific nuts and bolts techniques that he employs that I got to feel like he is, you know, at the forefront of working out. The movie was made in 1944, and, you know, he's really kind of, I think, creating a lot of the conventions here. But yeah, in terms of it gelling into an overall effort, you know, it does depend on the movie, as we so often say, for it to be a really great score, it's kind of got to be a really great movie, too.
1: I do see this as a case of kind of a not great movie made into a movie that suggests that it could be good Uh by a score. That's a pretty amazing achievement by a score. Sure. But
0: you can only go so far.
1: You can only go so far you can 't completely transform something so
0: I- so I think part of the reason that this doesn 't have that you know cohesive overarching artistic vision that a vertigo does is because this is, you know, very much a run-of-the-mill, churned-out studio system picture. Doesn't have an iconoclastic, you know, vision auteur at the top like Hitchcock, or even like Hermann was in the musical realm, to guide it along and really make it a piece of artwork. It's a factory job. Yeah. They were making tons of these. And sometimes, you know, people talk about Casablanca made in 1942 as a B movie. It's just one of the ones that they get churned out. And sometimes it has this magical serendipity of all the parts falling into place and having this lasting quality. I saw it referenced that Laura was sort of in that mold that, yeah, it was just one of these movies, one of these detective stories that just gets churned out by the studios. And this one, you know, stuck for some reason. I mean, I think the reason really is the music and the song. But yeah, this movie is uh, not as good as Casablanca, let's say.
1: Yeah, but I think that's a great comparison. Yeah, that Casablanca is this movie that is timeless because things just happen to fall in this beautiful way that made this lasting thing. This, to me, feels like a run-of-the-mill B-movie that, uh, you know, a third of it happened to fall in kind of a special (laughs) configuration, and the other two-thirds are not that special. Okay. That's how it reads to me. I mean,
0: I think what you're picking up on, that the production seemed a little bit blowing in the wind, not sure where (laughs) it was going, I think is accurate, because it was a troubled production. It started out being directed by some other guy, because Daryl Zanuck, the head of Fox Studios had had a falling out with Otto Preminger a few years earlier, and Preminger had worked up this story from a novel, but it used to be a play, and Zanuck wouldn't let him direct it. He gave it to a guy named Mamoulian. The rushes came back, and they were terrible, and didn't have a good idea of what was going on, and so finally Zanuck relented and let Preminger step in and direct it, and he scrapped everything that came before and totally redid all the sets and the costumes and the lighting design, everything, and directed the actors differently because of that Alfred Newman the head of music at Fox Studios whose score for How the West Was Won was the first episode of our podcast he passed on doing the movie he offered the score to Bernard Herrmann to do and Bernard Herrmann passed because the production was troubled he didn't think it was you know good enough for him and it fell to like you said this kid Raxon who had just sort of been kicking around Hollywood sort of as an assistant as a ghostwriter really for a few years
1: well, his first big job was basically doing all of the actual work for Charlie Chaplin so that Charlie Chaplin could get the credit as the composer for Modern Times. Yeah. Because Chaplin would come up with tunes, but he didn't know how to arrange, orchestrate, or work out the details. It was like a humming job.
0: So yeah. I mentioned this before, but later in his life, David Raxon was a professor at UCLA and then at USC teaching film music. And I was lucky enough to be in his class just a year or two before he died. I think he was 91 when I was in his class, and it was a real thrill and an honor to hear him talk about this stuff. And he played this movie for our class, Laura, and he played Modern Times, which, if you haven't seen Modern Times, that is a real worthwhile treat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin is credited with pretty much every credit on that movie, including music, and Raxon told us that Chaplin was what they called in the industry at the time a hummer. Right. Uh, which means that he would go, I want the music to go bum bum-bum, bum 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 And then Raxon would be the guy to actually, you know, make that happen so that a whole orchestra full of musicians could make it sound like what Chaplin thought he was humming.
1: Yeah, he started out as an arranger and then got into this sort of arranging to the point where you're doing a lot of composition job. And then he was sort of co-writing these horror movie scores that had a bunch of different people pitching in. And this Laura was definitely a step up for him. This was a good get for him.
0: So we should tell the story about him setting out to work on this movie. He sort of right away stuck his neck out further than maybe he intended to, but he felt he had to stick it out.
1: So yeah, he went into a screening. He saw the movie for the first time and Zanuck was there in the screening and was making noises about cutting out the central sequence, which is, if you've ever seen a clip from Laura, you've seen this scene. It's where the detective goes back to Laura's apartment alone and gazes at her portrait
0: Thinking she's dead.
1: Yeah, that's right. She's still dead at this point, And he's sort of investigating, but he's really just drinking and staring at her <laughs> and obsessing over her portrait.
0: And rifling through her things.
1: And yeah, looking at her clothes and having thoughts. <laughs> There's no dialogue. There's just him pacing around the apartment and looking flustered. Zanuck said he was going to cut this out.
0: Or at least cut it down heavily.
1: He said that this was slowing down the movie and should go. And Raxon spoke up immediately. Yeah, this little pipsqueak. I imagine because he was probably thinking, that's the scene where I'm going to shine. Yeah, yeah. And when the producer says, oh, that's going to come out, he actually spoke up and said, well, wait, that's important.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at an interview here. And here he said, uh, he said, this is one of those scenes in which music could tip the balance, tell the audience how the man feels. And if it doesn't work, you can still trim the sequence, he offered an out to Zanuck. And Zanuck, you know, said, okay, fair enough, go ahead, try. And one of the other people, assistants or whatever, who were in the room there, pulled him aside and said, I hope you know what you've done. From now on, when the scene doesn't work, it's your fault.
1: One of the things I think is striking about that anecdote is that it reminds us that from the point of view of the producers, that scene was not pivotal. Yeah. And if you watch the movie now, that is the linchpin to any suggestion that this movie has some depth to it. And they were just not evaluating it that way. They were imagining a movie with this twisty but boring (laughs) mystery plot.
0: Yeah, you're right. He saw a different movie than the producers did. And actually, David Raxon did a commentary track on the DVD that we watched, and it's really interesting to hear him say as much.
2: And uh, I saw immediately, it was not a detective story, but a love story in a detective story milieu. Based on that vision, he really had some
0: storytelling ideas, and there's a few specific moments in this scene where he thought, well, this isn't really on the screen, but I'm gonna make it be on the screen because I think this is what the story is he really inserted himself into that dramatically.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the benefits of having a break be on a troubled production is <laughs> that there's holes that you can stick your head through. Right, like yeah. He saw in the lack of vision a place for him to really assert himself that's my gloss on what this is
0: yeah and then you know within this scene he sticks his head into the middle of the scene when dana andrews the detective is pulling some papers and correspondence out of laura's desk and he doesn't really do anything particularly emotive on screen he kind of stands up from the desk and drops these papers and nothing much, but Raxon decides that this is the moment when he really gets flustered and his emotions run away with him. He sets off this kind of fugal, intense string tension escalation here, riffing off of the theme. Mm-hmm. here he said this was a risky thing to do but i believed that the curve of tension should be rising here and it was not as visible as it should be i wanted to make the point that this pragmatic man the detective was growing uncomfortable with his feelings about the girl in the portrait he decided that he put that into the movie
1: yeah it's a bold thing to do and it's great like just i'm waiting for moments like this as i'm watching this movie Uh this scene really is juicy the music just suggests all these depths yes it suggests the inner life of the detective but beyond that it just suggests that everything that's going on is significant somehow what does he say the arc of the tension should be rising there the curve of tension should the be rising. the curve of here. tension yeah that's a lovely way of thinking about it the music just puts some curves into the scene mm-hmm. as contours to it in a general way
0: Right at the end of that little passage we were just talking about, he stubs out his cigarette. And Raxon again said, This is not a very big action, but the way he did it says something. However, it didn't say it clearly enough. <laughs> He's a critic here. He's a director. So he puts this little accent on the moment of him stubbing out the cigarette. He calls it a negative accent by having the music drop out right at that moment.
1: Right. The cigarette like cuts off the build. Yeah. There's just this sense of all of the actions on screen, all the camera movements become pregnant. Everything becomes mm-hmm. meaningful when this music gets in there and says it is meaningful. Yeah. I love those little accents when he turns on the light and the yeah. horns and clarinets are da-da-da-da-da. Ooh, it feels like something's about to happen or something is implicit in everything he's doing. It's great. Yeah, it is great. It's like suddenly this movie feels like a mystery, uh-huh. a real mystery.
0: Yeah, and I just want to point out that, again, this is a composer, you know, his job is to write the notes, but in order to do that, he has to think like a storyteller, he has to think like a writer and a director, he's sculpting the scene, he's deciding what means what, and I think he really is sort of among the first practitioners of this craft to really flex that muscle confidently in this way.
1: Yeah, well said. Did I say this about Alex North on Streetcar Named Desire? Something about putting his hand in and shaping the clay? Sounds right. You get this sense of the composer saying, I can change what this is, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it better by changing what it is in this scene and in a couple of other sequences and then I was just aware of all of the places where oh I wish that guy I wish that Raxan guy were here <laughs> reaching in and you know just shaping this a little pushing on it because uh, I know he would give it a good push because when he takes the time to push it it improves it for sure
0: so this is like we said this is the linchpin sequence of the whole movie when Dan andrews is falling in love with the portrait of laura on the wall he falls asleep in the chair and then laura alive and well walks into the apartment and confronts him and this is when she learns what's happened that there's been a murder in her apartment and the body was mistaken for her it was somebody else <laughs> Anyway, this is the key reveal in the movie, the fact that she's still alive and he sees her. (laughs) And there's no music.
2: What are you doing here?
0: You're alive. Graxen has stepped aside, I think, very deliberately. He has decided that the music that he was writing was about this detective falling in love with the the portrait, the portrait of a dead woman. And it was about his fantasy and his kind of reverie about something that was not real. And as soon as it becomes real, as soon as she materializes and walks into the room, walks into real life, I think Raxon said, well, the music I was writing was about not real life, was about this wispy fiction in the air.
1: (laughs) I think you're right. I wonder why... I mean, this is what's so strange about this movie. The detective falling in love with a dead woman through the portrait and the stories about her movie is the reputation of what Laura is. But if you watch the movie, you know, for the whole second half, she's known to be alive by everyone. And you're left with just a very conventional stock, they're falling in love story that's not really taken very seriously. And in the first half, most of the time is spent talking about, you know, who left the whiskey there and, you know, was the key in the drawer? And it's not really about him falling in love with her. And it really is just this one scene yeah. with this very good piece of scoring has kind of tricked us all into thinking that there's a whole movie about that there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's right. There's these little detective details, these little encyclopedia brown trip-em-ups that the detective catches people contradicting themselves or saying things that can be easily disproven. Like Vincent Price goes to a concert. <laughs> he asks him what was played at the concert, he says
3: well, Brahms first and Beethoven's ninth.
0: Uh uh. And then the detective just sits on that and then a couple of scenes later confronts him with the fact that, in fact, why did you say that was what was played at the concert?
3: to changed the program at the last minute and played nothing but Sibelius. Well, I suppose I should have told <laughs> Under
0: what place. possible circumstances could that occur?
1: <laughs> I was thinking about that. I thought, well, the choir for Beethoven's Ninth, yeah. or one of the soloists, the singing soloists, might have been a problem. He missed his bus or something. But to fill in with Sibelius is unlikely. And you don't
0: need the choir for Brahms first, though, so <laughs> why couldn't they play that still?
1: They had sudden onset Sibelius. It was just a... <laughs> It was a downpour of Sibelius that (laughs) night. Gotcha.
0: You forgot about the Sibelius storm. (laughs) And
1: Vincent Price's answer is like, oh, well, I do fall asleep often. I just didn't want
3: (laughs) to admit that. Well, we've been working so hard. I, I just couldn't keep my eyes open. I didn't hear a note at the concert. I fell asleep.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to make fun of it exactly because uh, it's just lame. It's just lame detective stuff that hasn't really been baked all the way through. You don't get to the point of caring about the detail. Yes, that is what a lot of the screen time is. Yeah. And Raxon said, you know what would be a cool movie would be one about the detective falling in love with the painting. And that's kind of implied in this one scene. I'm going to go all out and convince you that the whole movie has been about that. That he almost succeeds is truly a sound, is amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah. But then I think he set up this rule for himself. He set up this idea of what the music was about, that it was about this fantasy of a girl that didn't really exist. Right. And maybe he painted himself a little bit into a corner because of that. Because when she walks in the door, boy, I wanted to hear something. When he sees her and says, oh my gosh, you're alive. And then their whole conversation You know, it's a very stark dividing line. I think that was his intended effect as well, that the half of the scene before she shows up feels very different from afterwards, you know, when it feels realistic now by comparison.
1: Yeah, it feels like some of the time we're in the world that Vertigo takes place in, and some of the time we're in the world that a kind of run-of-the-mill detective B-movie from 1944 takes place, Mm -hmm. and it really is a hard line. I'm glad to hear you say that you wished there was music when she came in, because even if he had just let that mysterious Mm chord linger over her entrance, instead of cutting it off before she comes in the door... You know, he falls asleep in the chair dreaming of the beautiful dead girl, and we hear this weird chord, which is a special effect. You want to talk about what the special effect is?
0: Yeah, we talked about how in 1950 in Streetcar Named Desire, North used this very early synthesizer. So this is before synthesizer, but he wanted a weird, spooky noise that, you know, was different than what an acoustic instrument would normally make. So he kind of concocted this sort of proto-synthesizer effect along with a sound guy, they work together and like if you change the shape of the playback head on the tape or something, it makes the sound wobble.
1: Yeah, instead of going around a circular thing, it goes around an oval thing and yeah. it goes wah-wah, wah-wah, wah-wah. It makes kind of a artificial vibrato kind of wobble sound.
0: So he had the piano play the piano line and recorded it separately, recorded it on its own tape track and then put it through that effect. So yeah, it has this kind of out of sync, out of reality, wobble, waviness, yeah. wooziness.
1: It comes off, it does sound sure. weirdly different from normal.
0: Especially the second half of this cue. In the middle of this scene, Clifton Webb shows up and has a little conversation. And then the music picks back up again after he leaves. The entrance the music has after he leaves is a chord played on a piano and run through that effect but the attack has been cut off. The moment when you first press down the keys and first start making the sound and especially in a piano, the way the sound is produced right at the beginning, the onset of the sound, which is called the attack, is very distinctive, really makes it sound like a piano to your ears. So if you cut that off and start playing it in the middle of the sound, it's very hard to tell that it's a piano.
1: It's just the ringing, the vibrating strings without any hammer. Right. I think that chord, when he is sort of drifting to sleep at the end of the cue, is the same kind of a chord. Yes, that's right. Eerie, ethereal, unearthly sound, just manipulated piano sound. just wish that had hung in the air so when she came in it said it's not just in his fantasy in this one sequence it is this whole story it is this person yeah maybe there was principle to it but it was a stingy principle compared to what i wanted
0: maybe so i did think that it was principled and i admired the principle because i (laughs) i like thinking about things that way Mm -hmm. but i agree i think ultimately it is a stingy principle and you can kind of hear him hinting that way if you listen to him talk on the commentary. There's a few scenes where he says, I didn't want to write music here because it would be too corny.
2: Now, see, under certain circumstances, there would have been music leading into this, but I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Too corny. Yeah,
1: I want to ask you about these because pretty much every place he said that was a place where I thought, oh, but that would have been so good. (laughs) That would have been so good. The first one particularly.
2: Yeah. Now, this is a place where they might have had music in those days but i decided no way
1: and he's talking about the scene where they first go to laura's apartment it's the detective and clifton webb the gossip colonist and vincent price the hunk <laughs> and they go into her apartment and he he's opens the round shades round he key. lets in some light and they look around and clifton webb like, makes this little speech to, to the effect of how piece? dare you call her a
3: dame look around is this the apartment of a dame oh. she looks. will you stop calling her a dame Look around. Is this the home of a dame?
1: And he points at the portrait. Look at her. And the detective looks at it for the first time, looks at the portrait. Yeah. Not bad. There's Jack nothing there. There's movie. no music. To sell exactly the movie that Raxon was selling in that middle scene, the movie of the detective being drawn by the weird forces that compel him to fall in love with his portrait, that movie really wants some signal, mm-hmm. some sound emanating from this space, that it is special, that there's something about it. We don't know until 40 minutes into the movie that the detective... I mean, is there any hint prior to that scene that McPherson, the detective, has been affected by something? I really wanted it in that earlier sequence. So to hear Raxon say, no way, I was like, well, why no way? I don't understand. And maybe you can explain what he might have been getting at.
0: No, I was totally confused by that no way as well. I think the hint about McPherson is... You can tell he's affected when he takes his little uh, get the BBs in the holes game out of his pocket.
1: Yeah, he has one of these uh, dexterity puzzles, the little uh, roll all the balls to be on all the bases of the baseball diamond at once. (laughs) You think he does that when he's disturbed? I thought it's just like uh, A a
0: tick. He says it's soothing to him. What I can't imagine is soothing, though, is carrying that around in his
1: pocket all the time.
0: <laughs> it's got to sound like somebody, you know, with a box of Tic Tacs or something.
1: I really missed getting to see him get them all in the hole. You know, <laughs> at the end of the movie, we'll see. That would be the closing shot, fade to black on little toy. Yeah, I felt it's a, a loose end that hadn't been tied up for him. But um, presumably, you know, if he does fall in love with Laura and they live happily ever after, we can assume that he does manage to get all four balls in the holes at the same time.
0: <laughs> yeah, if they actually had a love scene, you know, that's what Hitchcock would have done. He would have panned the camera away from the bed and to the little toy with all the balls in the yeah, holes. Yeah, totally
1: the Freudian BB toy, the Freudian BB toy.
0: So yeah, I think that Raxon did have some idea of some principle that the music could only be in this kind of dream space fantasy relationship to the movie. I think, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, yeah, like I said, he painted himself into a corner with that. But I want to talk about this sequence in the first half of the movie, where I think it is an absolute tour de force of setting up rules for what the music is, why it's there, and following them so skillfully. And that is this long sequence where Clifton Webb's character, Waldo Lidecker, tells the story of his relationship with Laura, and it's a long flashback, or series of flashbacks, and the music is just woven in and out of this so expertly, I think.
1: It is, and uh, let's talk about that. But I'm not sure it follows even the same principle you just talked about. I mean, it sort of belies what you just said about he sets up, it can only work one way, it has to do with the fantasy, because in this sequence, Lidecker's just telling the story, and the music is, if anything, underplaying. You know, spoiler, he turns out to be the one who done it in the end. <laughs> it's not
0: that hard to guess, because he's a creep. <laughs> <laughs> He's a real creep the whole time. Well, I
1: think, uh, wasn't that a quote from Otto Preminger about how he felt like he knew how to direct this movie because all of the people in it were cads? Yeah, they were all heels. Mamouli didn't get it because he knows nice people and likes nice people, and uh, Preminger said, the people in this are terrible people like me and all my friends, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Back to what we were talking about. Lidecker tells his story, his history with Laura, and it is not scored to suggest that this is a murderer's story right it's just a benign flashback where we get to meet the character laura
3: men admired her women envied her she became as well known as waldo lydica's walking stick and his white carnation
1: yeah the music isn't really serving that mysterious otherworldly function at all here. it's very comfortable
0: no it's It's not otherworldly but I feel like it is giving the sense that his whole conception of her is kind of spun out of a fantasy, Uh, you know, his perception of his relationship with her is sort of in his own head.
1: Yeah, it's complicated, it's subtle how subjective the music is in this sequence. It's not clear.
0: So it starts out with this interesting effect. You know, I didn't think it worked when we heard the song of High Noon being played in the background (laughs) in the scenes of High Noon, like on the saloon piano or on the harmonica. It struck me as weird. I think it's played intentionally as weird in this case because we start the scene we're in a fancy restaurant, how fancy so fancy that there's a live fancy music trio. There's three guys playing a piano, a violin, and an accordion we see them playing and because we see them playing, Raxon said okay, I gotta write music that is for piano, violin, and accordion and they are playing the tune the melody, the theme of the movie And I think it's intentionally played for weirdness here, this kind of blurring of the distinction between reality and fantasy. You know, you're watching a movie. This is the theme of the movie. You already heard it in the main title. You heard it in another spot. But it's also inside the movie. And then Clifton Webb starts to tell the story about how he met Laura. The picture crossfades into the flashback. And now is the first time we see Gene Tierney in the picture. The music smoothly transitions from this small live trio texture into a full orchestra. The full orchestra enters right on this
3: fade, Happy. making plans for her future. Good luck. But this was a far cry from the girl who walked into my life, at the Algonquin Hotel five years before.
2: I think
0: it's such a cool effect. It's like uh, colorization. It's like the world is opening out from his story. You know, the song is in the air where he's sitting at the restaurant. He kind of pushes through it. It's like this tune is the gum holding the whole scene together, and this story he's telling is blowing a bubble in it. That's how I felt about it. Hmm. This goes back and forth for however long the sequence is, 10-15 minutes. Whenever we cut back to the actual clifton Webb telling the story the music smoothly without missing a beat without stopping the, the progression of the melody transforms speech. from orchestra to little restaurant
3: tree these were the best nights and then one tuesday she phoned and said she couldn't come it didn't matter really and then back again, again the following friday i was disturbed understand
0: it i felt betrayed yeah it's very smoothly coordinated okay so then as this flashback story proceeds we see blidecker and laura in different settings they go to a party and we hear the tune again now as source music in a different room you know played by a different band
3: until one night at a party at anne treadwell it was one of her usual roundups of bizarre and nondescript characters, chorale from every stratum of society. This is Mr. and Mrs. Preston. They've been waiting all evening to meet you. But
0: it's all continuous. It's not different pieces of music that were just stitched together in the editing room. He conceived of this whole suite of textures and styles to flow one into the next compose that way. Instead of, like, crossfading on your iTunes, it's like Abbey Road, where all the songs were written to go from one to the next. It's so skillfully done. To me, it really gave me the feeling that this tune, this idea of the thing that Clifton Webb's character is obsessed with in Laura, and then that passes into Dana Andrews that he's obsessed with, is kind of similar to how we said in Vertigo. This idea is its own thing, and the world that they're going through is made of that. And then there's this serendipitous moment at the end of the sequence. We finally come back out of the flashback It's the last thing that happens in his story before he thinks that she's dead. We come back in the restaurant, and it's late. The restaurant's closing up, up, so obviously the trio has left.
2: I'll call you when I get back.
3: Bye. It was the last time I ever heard her voice. I was sure she had too much pride to forgive him.
0: So now we don't hear the musicians, and I was expecting to kind of hear them bookend the end of the story, but you can't because they're not there anymore. And that also had this effectiveness to me. He built this whole sequence around what was on the screen and then just wove it into a cohesive world of its own.
1: There's definitely a lot of fine craftsmanship going on there, and I do admire that. In the middle of that sequence, he does a waltz version mm-hmm. of the theme, and prior to revealing it as a version of the theme, he has some sort of waltz material that uh, sort of obliquely sounds like it, but he hasn't gotten to the theme yet, and it's very smartly worked out, tasteful composition. The overall effect is that we've spent a lot of time in a source music kind of world, kind of a yeah, fair dance bands and mm-hmm. background music at a restaurant, and we end up hearing the theme as a very everyday thing at great length. I mean, this is like 20 minutes of the movie, as you said, in a 35-minute score. I did a rough count, and almost 15 minutes of the 35-minute score are source music of one kind or another. Hmm. They're often playing the theme, but they're playing it pretty much straight as a party band would play it, or as a restaurant ensemble would play it. You know, I'm a very music forward watcher of movies. I don't mean in the sense that I'm focusing my attention on it, but just like the music is kind of guiding me into what kind of experience I have. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. That's why we're here. I mean, I think that it varies a little bit from person to person, but that definitely is the kind of person I am and why I care about this stuff, because it really has an effect on me.
0: That's what I tell people whenever they ask me what you're like. I say, he's the kind of a person that the music really dictates how he feels as he's watching a movie.
1: I would accept that. If that was your uh, quickie description of me, I'd be like, yeah, cool. That feels (laughs) like it goes deep. This sequence, for all that it's well-crafted, it puts me into a bland movie about this song just as a song. You know, the first time we hear it, he plays it on a phonograph in her apartment. Yeah. We hear it (laughs) as her favorite tune. And Vincent Price sums it up and says that it's uh, not exactly classical,
3: but (laughs) sweet. Would you mind turning that off? Why don't you like it? it was one of laura's favorites not exactly classical but sweet you know a lot about music i don't know a lot about anything but i know a little about practically everything yeah
0: but i thought it was such a nifty trick when in the middle of the flashback sequence clifton webb is describing when we used to sit at home and listen to records
3: and friday nights we stayed home dining quietly listening to my records I read my
0: we hear exactly that orchestration mm-hmm, that we heard playing speech. on the record yeah in that first scene but it's arrived at organically from These the score the that came lights. before and after it and then it just sort of passes into the next one
3: tuesday she phoned and said she couldn't come didn't matter, really.
0: It's like this continuous morph that I found to be just a cool trick and was sort of taken with.
1: Yeah, I can't deny the skill of any of this, but, you know, you've been listening to it. This is the kind of music that we're listening to for a good chunk of the movie, and when it goes deeper later, it feels like I wonder why I didn't lay the groundwork more. It's a beautiful theme. I mean, we should just talk about the theme in its own right.
0: Yeah, we should definitely talk about the theme, and we got to tell the story of where it came from, how he came up with it. So I think it was the day after that screening of the movie that he watched with Zanuck that we talked about, where he piped up and said, don't cut that scene. I want to write music for it. Uh, the next day, he met with Preminger, and Preminger told him that he wanted to get an existing song to use as the theme for this movie. His first idea was to use Gershwin's Summertime. <laughs> And that didn't work out. Couldn't get that song. And then his next choice was that he wanted to use Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady. lady, And Raxon said, I like that song. I like Ellington. But it's not right to use it in this movie because people have all these associations with it already. I can write something better. I can do something that's better for the movie. Preminger said, okay, it's Friday. Write something better by Monday, or else we're using Sophisticated Lady. So Raxon has this tough assignment. He's already stuck his neck out and said, I'm going to write music for the scene that you were about to cut, and then also, you know, don't bother getting this famous song. I'm going to write something better, and this is his first big job, and it's a lot of pressure. So he goes off that weekend to come up with something to justify him having said, don't use the Ellington song which is great. You know, it's a great tune. Yeah, you can kind of imagine sophisticated lady in the movie. But anyway, he says he can do something better, and he spends the whole weekend trying to work something out at the piano. He had gotten a letter from his wife at the beginning of the weekend, and he didn't really understand what it said, and he put it in his pocket. It got to be Sunday night, and he hadn't come up with anything that he liked. He was getting desperate. He was tired at the end of his rope. He pulls this letter from his wife out of his pocket and reads it and kind of for the first time puts it together and realizes that it's a Dear John letter. She's writing to tell him that she's leaving him.
2: Started to read it and suddenly dawned upon me she was saying, farewell, buddy. And uh, that hit me very hard. And believe it or not, corny as it may seem, that's when I started to play the theme on the piano. Now, if you saw that in a Warner Brothers picture, you'd know it was phony, but it isn't.
1: I mean, that is a story that David Raxon told for 50 years. He
0: told it right to me, too. <laughs> it was cool to hear him say that right there in the room in the theater as we were watching that movie.
1: Yeah, I mean... He says right there, don't doubt me. I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. So,
0: he says it sounds like a corny Hollywood story. He's right, but all right, I believe him.
1: I believe that those two things happened in the same weekend. <laughs> they influenced each other. Okay. I don't know if his eye had to fall on the page at exactly the moment that he played why, the chord. Why doubt it? Maybe it did. Why? Why doubt it? I don't know. Then I don't.
0: Okay, you just said his eye fell on the page and he played the chord. I just want to spend a moment saying what chord it is that he plays. Mm -hmm. The chord that starts the melody. I think a lot of this melody's particular hook and melancholy come from the fact that it starts not on the normal chord that you would start something with. It starts on a chord that immediately needs to resolve and move to another chord. In fact, it starts on sort of two levels of remove of that phenomenon. It starts on a chord that needs to resolve to a second chord. And then that chord in turn needs to resolve to the next chord. It's this sequence, the chords two, five, and one. So it immediately sort of sets up a tension and a progression that has to happen. It's kind of a little mystery microcosm itself. Like, Where am I? Where am I? Okay, I'm here. Then
1: it happens again.
0: And then it happens again. He takes the place where you land and makes that now the start of another of the same kind of a sequence. He says, Where am I? Where am I? I'm here. You're here? Okay, well then, where is that? Where is that? Oh, it's over here instead.
1: But it's not just a searching, it's kind of a sighing, like uh-huh. letting out breath. It's sure a descending, descending, as you hear the top of the melody line. Yeah. There's a kind of sinking down and it's not totally clear if it's a relieved sinking down or a tragic sinking down. It's sort of both.
0: Well, this melody had an enormous effect on the audience. It was immediately super popular, and people started writing into the studio asking for sheet music of it so they could play it at home. Because of that, this was not something that was planned. And, you know, we talked about how High Noon kind of happened to luck into inventing having a song tied into a movie. You know, this is before anybody had done that. They hadn't really thought about it until well after the movie was released.
1: It was like the next year, I think.
0: The next year, yeah. There was a demand for the song. So the great lyricist, the great songwriter Johnny Mercer, put lyrics to this pre-existing tune, the tune that he had written without any lyrics at all in mind.
2: Lord the face in the misty light
1: and the lyrics are about the imaginary movie yeah the
2: steps that you
1: hear down the hall. I think Johnny Mercer said he had not actually seen the movie Laura when he wrote the lyrics
0: yeah he just had a rough idea that it was kind of about a mysterious girl that, that you can't quite get to or something
1: yeah
2: night, that mm-hmm. you can which is,
0: yeah, that's the movie that, uh, that Raxon wanted to score.
1: These lyrics are better than the
2: script, I say. <laughs> I think you're right.
0: While this became an incredibly popular tune, it became what's called a jazz standard. Which means it's a song that everybody plays. Everybody puts their own spin on it.
1: Cause those changes, because that two five one, and then another two five one, and then sinking down, down, down. Yeah, is a cool. It's just a cool staircase to trip down, and you can dance down it, or you can tiptoe down it, and you you can do cool stuff on it. So of course, jazz guys wanted to show off. Sure. On
0: that. Yeah, and popular singers in the popular jazz vocal style of the forties and fifties and sixties all wanted to have a try at it. This is like one of the most covered songs of all time. It's got to be, you know, in the top 10 or something. There's hundreds and hundreds of recordings of this song, including Nat King Cole. See Lara
3: On the train that is passing through
0: And, of course, Frank Sinatra sang this song.
3: Laura Is the face. In the misty light.
0: And maybe best of all, here's Elphus Gerald singing
1: it. You can't the get any better than Elvis Gerald. <laughs> she must have really loved that woman, Laura.
0: <laughs> well, it's a kind of a second person. It's like, here's the story of Laura that's happening to you, the listener. Oh, that's true. Down yeah, the gender of the singer doesn't actually matter.
1: I think. Yeah, they just know. Yeah. They're like the Clifton Webb, really, in this scenario. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Creepily leaning in and saying, you're in love with her, aren't you?
0: (laughs) And then here, let's play some jazz takes on it. These are versions that don't have lyrics, but they came after all of these versions with lyrics because it was a tune that everybody knew. So, you know, you had Charlie Parker playing this song. here's my favorite, Dave Brubeck playing this song. Mm-hmm. This song was so popular, was so in the air, that here's an example of Dizzy Gillespie, the great trumpeter, This is a famous live recording of him playing at Massey Hall in 1953, almost a decade after the movie already, and he's playing another song. He's playing a tune called Perdido. Mm -hmm. In the middle of his bebop trumpet solo, he suddenly quotes the beginning of Laura, and you can hear it gets a laugh. gets an appreciative kind of laugh and a little bit of applause from the audience who recognize the tune just as it's flying by in the middle of his jazz solo.
1: Yeah, that's how you know your piece has really made it. Not just that it gets covered, but that it becomes a little bit of throwaway. Yeah. And that means it really is just become a little idiom. Yeah. And the audience is hip to it. Yep. You know, they're like, yeah, that was cool. I know what you're talking about. Everyone knows what he's talking about. So we've implied this. Maybe we said it at the beginning. There's only one theme in this score in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's that. It's theme from Laura, later known as Laura, the whole way through. He really does build the whole score out of this. He
0: himself describes it as a monothematic score.
1: But he, I think very smartly, tastefully... Put some other stuff around it that's not really thematic, but that does give a sense of complexity to what's going on musically. It's not just a matter of hearing the tune again and hearing it again. It's working things out. And so he has this motif that the first couple of notes you think, well, maybe he's about to play the tune because it starts with da-da-da. But instead of da-da-da, it goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it has sort of a fake-out effect or a kind of... This little wisp of material. Was thinking about playing the Laura theme, <laughs> but it had some other business to do first, or you know, we haven't quite earned that yet, or something else is in the air right now. It doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't add up to anything, it doesn't correspond to anything. You know, you might at first think, oh well maybe this is Waldo's theme, but it's not anyone's theme.
0: It feels yeah, derived out of stuff we've heard before.
1: And then he's got at the beginning of the apartment, the famous sequence, there's this sort of rising line, bass clarinet line, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da And then you hear it again when Vincent Price goes to the vacation house, whatever it is, the getaway house that she's been staying in. It's just to fill space, basically, but the fact that he fills it with the same material kind of worked out the same way is really good for the picture, I thought. The the fact that these things recur and you know link with each other, even if it doesn't have any real meaning, it at least suggests meaning to me. It feels...
0: Yeah, he had This idea that this score was going to be kind of a monolith, and he was going to restrict himself to this one bit of material and little things that he could kind of carve off of that and develop away from it. Yeah, it's all very much in the same world. Like I said before, I think he had this instinct to kind of limit what he wanted to do with the music. You know, after she reappears, after she turns up alive, from that point forward in the movie, there's very, very little music. There's this one spot where... There's like some intrigue and suspense in the rain, and they're driving cars. And this is when he tails Vincent Price to that cabin. He says on the commentary track, kind of dismissingly, sheepishly almost. He says,
2: "This is just, you know, mystery film music."
0: Like he knew that it was sort of generically required for there to be some kind of suspense heightening here. But I don't think he really wanted to because I think, you know, that didn't fit into his paradigm. And then at the end of the scene, at the end of that conversation between Dana Andrews and Vincent Price, he again
2: chimes in and said, See, there are no phony little snippets of music there.
1: Yeah, such a strange thing to be principled about. It's all phony. You know, (laughs) you got to sell us a bill of goods. That's your job. I was truly bewildered by that, having already watched the movie and thought, oh, I wish he had done more. I wish he had drawn me deeper in, because hmm. I would have gone for it. Sure. Like, in the apartment sequence that we talked about, why does it drop out when Lidecker shows up?
3: I happen to see the lights on. I have
1: thought it would be great. Government. It would give Waldo some threat, which he never really has, if he says,
3: Have you ever dreamed of Laura as your wife? by your side at the policeman's ball or in the bleachers or listening to the heroic story of how you got a silver shin bone from a gun battle with a gangster i see you have why don't you go home i'm busy
1: and there was just some music there to give force to this Mm -hmm. like oh it's this force he can't get away from and leidecker is somehow in league with the weird force of her magnetism some music would really have helped us to see that as something troubling something worth worrying about hmm. he just sort of waddles in and out of the scenes and says mean things to people and it <laughs> Waldo doesn't <the> waddler. <laughs> this story is silly and kind of inconsequential and it doesn't have much of a point to it that's my script doctor analysis of <laughs> it but you know a thin story can benefit from being generalized from being given the suggestion mm-hmm. that these are at some level archetypes and that they're interacting in some shadowy way that has a significance beyond whether he left the key in the drawer or whether the maid knew or didn't know if you just suggest okay this is the specific story but there's a general story that it is access to I think that that's one of the main things music does for movies. You're watching photographic records of people actually standing in a room and there's always the risk of it seeming too specific and too small and what is this to me? And the music says, this is important. When Raxon gets up on his podium and, you know, taps the baton and says, now listen, I absolutely was listening and thought, this does seem important. I couldn't explain why, but it does seem important. And as soon as that music goes out of it, it became specific and small again. Hmm. As a bit of a speech. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, I think... I think you've got something there. And, you know, as we've said many times on this show, we're talking about a combined art form. The score needs a movie to contain it. And movies that are great movies need a score to heighten it. It's a very codependent relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're saying that the overall amalgam of the score in the movie here didn't all the way make it for you, I get it. I sympathize with that. So here, I think I've gone first the past couple times ranking things. I'm very curious to hear where you put this on the list. I have a few different slots where it could go on mine, but I want to hear yours first.
1: All right. I picked a spot. I'm just going to say where the spot is. Do it. I am putting it above King Kong and below on the waterfront.
0: Okay. I got to say, that is where I predicted that you would put it.
1: You predicted that? Yes, I did. And that's before you're surprised that I I wasn't as enthused at the beginning as you thought I would, is where you predicted during the recording?
0: Yeah, sort of as we were going along, I sort of formed an image of where you were going to put it.
1: I just feel like that, what is it, six minutes in the middle of the movie? How long is that apartment sequence? Something like that, yeah. That six minutes in the middle of the movie is like the greatest possible assist that music can give a movie. It's like it grabs the movie by that scene and just like yanks it up (laughs) a few feet into the air. And that is amazing. And then the rest of it is an excellent craftsman, very sensitive, very smart about how much it can take what he can get away with and what he can't. I think that takes a real sensitivity and it's very impressive. But the overall effect that it adds up to is kind of a bad movie made somewhat better. So that's where I'm rating it.
0: Okay, sounds good. I am also going to put it between On the Waterfront and King Kong, but there's a lot more space between those movies on my list. <laughs> <laughs> what I was debating as you were talking was whether I want to put it above or below Sunset Boulevard. Uh huh. You probably think I should put it below Sunset Boulevard, don't you? You like Sunset Boulevard a lot more than this.
1: Yeah, I think that there is a sort of comparable craftsmanship mm-hmm. and that the overall dramatic coordination is just so much better between the score and the movie in boulevard
0: i think i think i'm gonna go along with you on that
1: be exciting if you went the other way don't let me talk you out it. no
0: that's where i was leaning i think i want to credit this score with first of all a truly great melody
1: oh yeah truly
0: as has been proven as it has stood the test of time The Darwinian marketplace of melodies (laughs) has proven the fitness of this melody. And it's not just like the Pink Panther where it's this great tune that doesn't really have anything to do with the movie. It is a great tune that really is very convincingly and affectingly about this character and about the relationship that these other guys strike to her. When you hear that melody and you see Gene Tierney or you see the portrait of Gene Tierney in this movie. Yeah, maybe more so than when you see Gene Tierney. Exactly, yeah, that's right. I think he meant it to be for the portrait more than for the real woman. But when you experience those things together, that is a real achievement, that is a real melding to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. And then all of the other kind of nuts and bolts tricks I was talking about, the way that he's able to morph the music so smoothly between source and score and other kinds of source and other kinds of score— big thumbs up to that as well, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, I gotta agree with you about him being perhaps over-principled, not going all the way with assisting this movie in all the ways that it could have been assisted yeah you picked up that one moment but you're right that that makes the rest of the movie kind of droop down in comparison (laughs) so that's where i'm going to put it below sunset boulevard above ben-hur uh-huh and that's sort of right in the middle of my list
1: so above ben-hur because you just feel like it's more sophisticated it's more
0: above ben-hur because it gets that many points for how good a tune it is oh sure having a little snippet of music that really is unforgettably associated with an image counts for a lot. I don't think Ben-Hur quite reaches that.
1: Yeah, that may be so. Good point. Is that it? That could be it. That might be it. I, I think we did it, right? Yeah, I feel weird about this one because I feel like people really love this. And I thought I, I'm coming to this with a pretty idiosyncratic failure to love it. <laughs> I think it really casts a spell on some people. And I don't want to discount that. It's just us here, though. It's just us having this conversation. Certainly nobody else. There's no one else involved. (laughs) Well, there might
0: be more people next episode. (laughs) The title of this movie had five letters in it. Next time, I'm going to talk about a movie whose title only has four letters in it. Can you guess what the movie is? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Babe.
0: (laughs) That's got some nice music, Babe does. It
1: does have some nice music. All right. Uh, not Babe. It's uh, Fame. Also has some significant music <laughs> sure, in it. Sure, sure. Four-letter movie.
0: Uh, oh, is there a movie called Wolf?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. With uh, with Jack Nicholson as a werewolf. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, toys uh-huh, with uh-huh, uh, Robin Williams uh-huh. as some toys. Sure.
0: <laughs> do, you, do you know what it actually is?
1: I do, yeah. I think what we're proving here is that it is the most famous <laughs> 4 Letter movie. There you go. It really ushered in the whole era of four letter movies. <laughs> it was really. A... That's what
0: everybody always says about it. Yeah, this forever changed. Yeah,
1: they were like, it really changed the movie business forever. Yeah, these studios, they put all this money into trying to make a four letter movie. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that probably explains why sequels were doomed.
1: Are we going to talk about the theme has four notes in it because the movie has four letters in it?
0: I don't agree that the theme only has four notes in it, so...
1: (laughs) I don't don't think the theme has four notes in it. I mean,
0: a lot of people say that the theme only has two notes in it, which I'm also, spoiler alert, going to dispute.
1: Uh You think it has no notes in it.
0: (laughs) The movie is Jaws. We're talking about John Williams' score for Jaws, the landmark Spielberg adventure thriller movie.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It's about a shark. Yeah. Or is it? Right. Spoilers next time. We're going to tell you what animal it's about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that, aren't you? That's going to be great.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, who doesn't think that's going to be great? It's so obviously (laughs) going to be great, I don't even need to say that it's going to be great.
0: I'm a little intimidated, even, at having to talk about it going to be great. Oh,
1: it's going to come naturally. It's going to come naturally to me to talk about why Jaws is great. I do it all the time.
0: Oh, okay yeah boy so uh that is going to be great please do come back and listen to that one please do chime in to the discussion on twitter at score settlers
1: or leave us a review and leave us a review on itunes now you get it if you have something good to say (laughs) hugo
0: (laughs) (laughs) that really stopped me in my tracks yeah i didn't like that movie or that score
1: Ah. Um, oh i've got a list here (laughs) juno sure cars okay Rudy. Oh. Hook. Wow. Dave. We really blew it. <laughs> Argo. Heat. Some of
0: these are very good movies.
1: Dr. No. You wouldn't have thought of that. Ooh. The clever. I should
0: have, because that shows them in crossword puzzles all the time.
1: Thor. Dune. The answer is there's tons and tons of four letter movies. And
0: they're all thanks to Jaws. Milk. Anyway, as we roll into the top of this list with some, you know, really great all time favorites, we'd love to have as many people along with us as we can. And I am told, again, that having people write reviews on iTunes really does help get the podcast in front of new listeners. So uh, that would be great.
1: Yeah, thanks to those who have done it.
0: Indeed, thank you very much
1: to those who have done it. Thanks for listening, everyone who's listening.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone who's listening. What if we just stopped after we said thanks for listening, like people?
1: Oh, that could be our sign-off? Just thanks for listening? Thanks for listening.
0: Uh, We really shouldn't open this can of worms again.
1: We'll see you next time. It's it's freaking Jaws next time.
0: It's freaking Jaws next time. That's the end.
1: Yeah, see you then.